Father, we come before you as our Lord, our King, as the one who gives us the joy of knowing that all things are in your control. And as the Sovereign One, you are a God of love beyond our ability to comprehend, a God of grace and mercy, the one who brings us hope, the one who gives us salvation and helps us to walk in the strength of the Spirit. We thank you for the Word which is our lamp unto our feet and guides us along the way, which energizes us, which washes over us with cleansing flow. And Father, I pray that as we focus on your word for these next few moments, that again you will instruct our hearts. And Father, I pray that each of us will be drawn to you in a special way. And I pray for those that are out of town today and uh, others that are ministering. I pray for Dr. Walmark as he is ministering in uh, Dr. Brown's class this morning, that you will just be present throughout this church this morning in the service and in the other classes and that your name will be exalted, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. In the, in the wilderness south of Canaan, there is an oasis called Kadesh Barnea. And as we have talked about Israel, we know that this is the second time they've been at Kadesh Barnea. They have passed from Kadesh Barnea, they wandered in the northern Sinai and probably over in the uh, north uh, western part of, of what is today Saudi Arabia, and now they're back at Kadesh Barnea. And here, as they return to this place, the new generation, the, the generation that was below 20, 19 on down to zero, and those born during the 40 years or 39 years of wilderness wandering, um, they now also, as their elders had done, as their parents had done, they now rebel against Moses and Aaron. And we read in verse 5 of this passage the reason for the rebellion. Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. So obviously their primary complaint has to do with the desires of the flesh. None of them were starving. None of them had dropped dead from lack of water. But this was their complaint because they didn't see it as adequate. What we discover is yet again, Moses and Aaron faithfully intercede with the Lord for their people. For the umpteenth time in 39 years, Moses implores the Lord on behalf of this rebellious people. Now, what we're going to see here is the incredible patience of God and the not quite so incredible patience of Moses, but nevertheless, more patience than I ever think I could have in a situation like this. Let's read at verse 8. God, hearing the prayer of Moses, the people are complaining, they don't have any water. So God says to Moses, take the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. 
And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. And then we have that word, but. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Mirabah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. God's patience is unlimited. Man's patience <laughs> is limited. And even though Moses has patiently, through these many years, gone before the Lord over and over again, there is a point, and there was a point in his own life when Moses blew it. Now, of all of the great men of history, great men or women of history, it certainly, uh, Moses has to rank amongst the very top. And yet what we discover is that Moses was a man with feet of clay, as it were, a man of flesh, as we all are, and a man who could fail. God, in verse 12, clearly spells out Moses' sin. Moses had accused the people of being rebels and then turned right around and rebelled against God. The word starts with H, <laughs> and it's a word that people outside the church are constantly accusing people in the church of being hypocrites, right? We're all a bunch of hypocrites. Well, every single human being ever born, save Jesus Christ, has been hypocritical in his or her life at some point, and many times in more than one point in his life or her life. Um, Moses has accused them of something that he turns around and does himself. And he does it in a big way, no small way, in front of the whole congregation, everybody, and in the presence of God, violates God's word. Aaron, of course, was implicated because he was an accomplice in the act, and so he will receive the same punishment that Moses received. We're, both, we're told here that both, God declared to them that they, neither one would enter the the promised land. Now, he does not mean the promised land with a capital P and the capital L. He doesn't mean heaven. He just simply means Canaan. And, you know, it, it was a hard thing for Moses to accept, certainly, because he had led this people all this far to take them into the land. But, of course, maybe he was also tired and was glad. I don't know. I don't think he was glad that he had failed, that he had sinned. I don't think he was glad for that at all. I think he was smitten in his heart right away, especially when God spoke to him immediately after the event which took place. But one of the things to notice here is the grace of God. In the midst of all this, the grace of God keeps flowing through. In the rebellion of the people and the rebellion of Moses and Aaron, what does God do? Moses has blatantly, publicly refused to glorify God and taken the glory for himself. Shall we bring this water out of this blooming rock for you? The water flowed. When he hit the rock, the water flowed. Now, only God would do that. If you had been there as God, or I had been there as God, we'd have said, Moses, you can hit that rock until you have no stick left. 
and there's not a drop coming out of that rock. Because you didn't do what I said. But God allowed the water to flow. He hit the rock and the water came out. It's almost as if, yeah, shall we do this? And he does it and it happens. Now today, of course, if that were to happen, the person would go on TV and have a big ministry. You know, God could have withheld the water. He could have withheld the water until Moses got it right, but he didn't. And he didn't withhold the water, I think, for at least three reasons. It was the attitude that Moses had more than it was the act of striking the rock that was the sin. And the attitude was already there. It was already rooted in his heart at that moment. And obviously the sin would not have been avoided or negated by withholding the water. So the water flowed. Secondly, I think, and maybe even more importantly, God knew Moses' heart. And as I thought about this, you know, David kept popping back into my mind, you know. David blows it gigantically. Is that a word? I don't know. But in a big way uh, with Bathsheba. And, and we hear about this all the time, don't we? And yet did God say, all right, David, you're no longer king of Israel. I'm going to put you out in the backside of the desert. You can push sheep around for the rest of your life. No. He was allowed to continue to be king of Israel. Oh, there was punishment. There was pain. But he was allowed to continue in his position. And so why was that? Because God knew David's heart. And one of the most incredible things you read as you read through the books of the kings and the chronicles is that every single king, just about every king, is compared to David. This king did evil in the sight of God, not as David had done. Or this king did right in the sight of, of God, but not quite as David had done. Or this king did right in the sight of God as David had done. It was David who was always held up as the one you, you compared everybody to. And you think, how come? How come? Because God knew David's heart. And, and we've often ourselves uh, quoted, in fact, I'll just turn to it for a moment here, from the psalm where David does his repenting. Psalm 51, create in me, verse 10, Psalm 51, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, and do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted. <laughs> Hmm, from an adulterer and murderer. And of course you read the life of, of Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus and, and we know he had stood there watching Stephen die. He may not have thrown any of the stones, but he was watching the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. And, 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 and Saul went about with murderous intentions, we're told, in the book of Acts. And yet God transformed that man and made him into a great apostle of the kingdom. And so God knew Moses' heart, and he knew that this was not Moses' characteristic. This wasn't Moses' basic attitude to rebel against God. He, has, he had been obedient to God over and over and over again. And yet, as a, res, as a foolish result of being frustrated and exasperated, he yielded to his flesh and listened to the whispers of the evil one. Has that ever happened to you or to me? I think so. Has God pitched us overboard? We can be grateful that he has not. 
The grace of God shows through these events multiple times. You know, the Old Testament isn't just a bunch of stories. It teaches the basic truths that you find in the Old Testament. It's the foundation of the New Testament truths. Thirdly, I think that he didn't withhold the water because in his grace, he will allow someone such as Moses and someone such as we are to play God once in a while and to discover the consequences and to realize that we must trust him in every and all circumstance, no matter how threatening or how stressful it may be. You know, we may be pushed to the point where we can scream and pull our hair out, but God is gracious in that moment. And God is there in that moment. And he expects us to react in a way that glorifies his name. And often we don't. But again, he picks us up, dusts us off, and says, all right, let's go on to the next opportunity. And so he will with Moses. Oh, Moses won't go into the promised land. But Moses has got a year of work left to do here. He's got to get him over on the launching pad so that they can go into the land. He won't actually cross the Jordan with him, but he gets them to the place where everything is ready so they can cross. He still has this to do. We're told in this passage that the spring at Kadesh was named Mirabah, which means contention, the spring of contention. Because as we read there in verse 13, the sons of Israel contended with the Lord. If you've got to contend with someone, Best not be the Lord, because he never loses, and he's never wrong. Let me read from the 95th Psalm, if I may. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, and a king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. You know, and just to take a break here for a moment, you know, sometimes we need to read these passages just to remind ourselves that although we're every place you read today, whether it be Time or Newsweek or National Geographic or wherever it is, you do not read about a world that it belongs to our Father, but we read about a rock that has, was formed here five some odd billion years ago and which has evolved through all of this, you know, and they're all worried today because they haven't found any evidence to indicate that the universe will stop expanding, you know. I don't know why that's a concern, but anyway. You know, and God is nowhere. And if we listen to all these voices, we end up you know, coming to a place where you, you take a humanistic view of everything rather than a divine view of everything. His hands formed the dry land. His hands formed this world. He doesn't tell us exactly how, but I don't think it was as science would like us to believe today, or some scientists anyway. It was under his divine control. Therefore, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your heart as at Mirabah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. And that refers to the earlier time when they rebelled when there was no water either, 38 years before. 
When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. And that's a very frightening statement. Because that statement can be taken to mean more than they won't get into Canaan. Because God's rest is not just Canaan. God's rest is eternal. That last half of verse 9 is a key to all of this. They tried me though they had seen my work. Most of you, I think, are familiar with the first chapter of Romans. Let me read a verse or two there. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's a very broad statement, but it indicates to us that any person who's really paying attention, whether they live in the United States or in Timbuktu or in the jungles of New Guinea, God has a witness in the created order. And, and there is something there which draws people to a sense of a sovereign, divine, creative person. And, and so there's that basic underlying truth. And that's one of the things that modern humanism specifically attacks. Modern humanism wants to eliminate any concept of intelligent divine order. Everything is just the result of chaotic accident. And, and the value of having that is you are no longer responsible for your actions. Because you're not responsible to anyone. So it is a theology. Modern science is backed by a theology. It is a spiritual matter. It is not just bold science, you know, fact and deduction and induction and all the rest of it. It is a spiritual battle and it is a theology. And considering what is coming forth today from many scholars indicating the impossibility of this all having come together by chance, those who still stick with it have committed themselves to a theology. And, and it just reminds me, as I have probably mentioned to you before, that Julian Huxley, who was considered to be the father of evolution about 25, 30 years ago, actually wrote in one of his works that no matter what you prove to me, I will believe in evolution because I refuse to believe the alternative. See, I mean, it's not a matter of science. It's a matter of, of personal bias and what one wants. And, and so that is so much today, unfortunately. Though they had seen my work. I mean, God had given 10 miracles in Egypt before they ever got out of the place. And he dries up the, river, uh, the, uh, the sea so they can get across. I mean, what does it take? What does it take for you and me to walk faithfully with God? He keeps doing things over and over again in our lives to prove who he is. And yet we keep coming to that place where we act as if he wasn't there. Now, we'll never escape our flesh. It's all we're dragging around with us uh, as long as we're in this life. And, and so we always have that tendency to sin. But God is gracious in it all. He's not, and that's what we're seeing here. The grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. Well, going on at verse 14 here of chapter 20. From Kadesh, Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us. 
that our fathers went down to Egypt and we stayed in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now, behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We shall not pass through field or through vineyard. We shall not even drink water from a well. We shall go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us lest I come out with a sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, we shall go up by the highway. And if I and my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Now one of the things we notice about the transition from verse 13 to verse 14 is that there is no punishment or discipline brought upon God, uh, on Israel by God for, for their complaint, for their after all that God had done for their saying, there's no water, there's no figs, there's no pomegranates. I mean, you brought us out of Egypt to this awful place. God provides them with water. <laughs> and he doesn't do anything else. God is very patient. Very patient. Now they, they face a new problem. Now one of the things you... Yes, Beth. It's a chilling thought that with our society talking about the lack of absolutes, the theology of blessing has crept into the church. And we've come to believe that if things are going well and God's plan goes forward, that means we've been approved by him. And this is a chilling lesson to remind us that God does what he does because of his faithfulness. And we cannot rationalize his faithfulness as a blessing upon us. Yeah. To assume that we are okay simply because God is accomplishing his purpose, maybe even through us. That's a very good point. You know, you and I are living in a very, in some ways, frightening time. Frightening because there has been a, I, I was reading this article, don't even remember where now, but about this organization which is purposely, uh, this is a Christian organization, which is purposely sending spies into uh, big TV ministries to try to show that they're fraudulent, to, to bring them down, and apparently has been responsible for the collapse of two of them in, in recent uh, years. Because, you know, these, these, these ministries are bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars, and, and the author of the article was saying, how many millions did Jesus have? You know, Jesus taught a theology of poverty. He lived in poverty. And, and yet these guys, uh, you know, are reaping in megabucks and living in big mansions and all of this kind of thing, where, where does that fit, you know? Is, is that because of the blessing of God? Or is that in spite? Yeah. In this passage, in beginning at verse 14, you, you may have noticed the wording here. The message that, that uh, Moses said, sends to the king of Edom is not, your majesty, uh, we would like to. He says, your brother Israel. He refers to Israel as the brother of Edom. How does that fit? What, what, what is he talking about here? 
Well, let me read a verse in 33rd chapter of Genesis. This is when Jacob has come back from uh, Baden Aram with Laban, and he's coming back to Canaan. And he's very fearful, of course, of running into his brother. And who was his brother? Esau, right. And we're told in verse 4 of chapter 33 of Genesis, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept together. Esau and Jacob wept together. Esau and Jacob were brothers. What kind of brothers? Twin brothers. <laughs> I mean, we're not talking about stepbrothers here or half-brothers or anything else. I mean, they, I mean, one had his hand on the heel of the other one. I mean, they were pretty intimate here. <laughs> Jacob having his hand on the heel of Esau. Esau is the father of, of Edom. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So they are the distant cousins, I suppose you could say, as the time has passed. It's been 500 years, of course. In 500 years, you, you may have tend to forget some of your family roots, but <laughs> I'd be happy if I could trace my family back 500 years. But... Um, so he's referring to them. He said, Brother Esau, in effect, he is saying here to the king, let us pass through your land. I mean, we're your kin. We're your kin. But this passage reveals that ancient animosities had already developed. That animosity between Israel and those who would become the ancestors of the modern Arabs or that whole Islamic group, that that, that hatred has already developed now, I think it's really important for us to understand why. The surface reason seems to be territorial. We don't want you in our land because certainly, although you say you won't eat any of our food and you won't drink any of our water, or if you do, you'll pay for it, we don't believe you. And we don't want you coming through our land because you'll be like a plague of grasshoppers moving through our territory. But that is not the real reason. The underlying reason for this hatred and for Edom's refusal was this was Satan's plan to try to keep Israel out of Canaan and thus to prevent the ultimate coming of Messiah. This was his plan. This was what he was trying to do. And he felt that if he could keep them out, just beat Israel back into the desert and have them all die, I mean, eventually God will wipe them out. You know, I'm sure Satan thought. Because they are such a rebellious people, and I'm helping them along. I mean, after all, look what I've done for Moses. God said Moses won't go in. What will it take for God to say that no one in Israel is going in? And if they don't go in, then the whole plan will go down the tube. What this teaches to you and to me today, it gives us an example of the truth of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where we're told that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but ultimately with the spiritual forces of wickedness. Moses and Israel were not wrestling with this king of Edom and the Edomites. That was the surface thing. But underneath was a spiritual war going on. You know, if I were Frank Peretti up here, I could describe to you all the flaming angels and all the evil demons that were in this great titanic dogfight, you might even say, you know, over, over this whole issue. It was a spiritual battle. And, you know, this is something we have to keep reminding ourselves that we are in a spiritual warfare. And that obnoxious boss at work or, or that 
troublesome child or whatever it is, there is something deeper than that surface conflict if you are a believer. If you are a believer, the enemy is trying to work at you through that person or that circumstance or whatever it is. It is basically a spiritual warfare. And we have to deal with it spiritually. We have to rebuke the evil one or ask God to rebuke him and, and to resist him because he will tear us down through these methods if he can. And often he does because we don't see the spiritual nature of it. We get to be complainy, gripey people. Oh, they're an awful boss at work. You know? Uh, you know, if God would just take him off this map, I'd be so much better. Well, you know, the person may be obnoxious, but there is a spiritual fight behind this. And, you know, that, that rebellious child or, or whatever it is, there is behind it a supernatural struggle going on. And as we see that as supernatural, we begin to find victory over the physical manifestations. Either God changes us so that we're able to tolerate the situation, or God will actually change the situation, as he has often done. Moses knew that he himself was not going to enter the promised land. But does he say, okay, God, you're not going to let me in, so you run this show. I'm washing my hands of this group. I don't have anything to do with the next several months or a year, or however long this is going to be. I retire. No, Moses doesn't do that. He still plans to fulfill his duty to the moment God calls him home. One of the fantastic things about Moses is, actually it's true of all three of these uh, persons, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, they don't wither away and die because, you know, of some crippling disease or something. They're strong to the moment God takes them to glory. God called him to a task, and he is going to complete it regardless of the fact that he will not get to see the fruit of it. Are we willing to do that? <laughs> Are we willing to play our role, even though we may not see the ultimate outcome of what that is? You and I are often used by God at some little point to, to kind of move somebody along towards the kingdom. And you and I may not get to actually be there to pray that final prayer with them whereby their hearts are open to the Lord, but because of a word you said, an attitude you displayed, something kind act you did that kicked this person to the next step where their heart was open and prepared. Or the prayer you prayed. That, I think, is, is very crucial. We can pray people into the kingdom. We may not see it happen in our lives, but God is faithful. He's going to lead them. Moses is going to lead them to the actual launching pad, to the place from which they would begin the conquest of Canaan. Now, 37 years before, the Israelites had attempted to enter Canaan, and they had been horribly defeated. Knowing that, Moses decides we are not going to attempt the invasion up that same route. Not because Moses feared another defeat at that place, but he feared that this would not be psychologically good for the people. Now, you may remember, let me just uh, turn back here to Numbers chapter 14, verse 39. Now, what has happened is, you remember, the people are at Kadesh, they sent spies in the land, the spies came back, spies, ten of the spies said, we can't do it, it's a great land, but we can't do it, two of them said, we can, the people decided to go with the ten, and so they basically said, we're not going in. So God said, fine, then you're going to wander around in the wilderness until this whole generation from 20 years old and upwards dies out. Then they decide, we don't like that. 
Verse 39, when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, lest you be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah, which means destruction. One of the truths about the Christian walk is that we walk obediently with the Lord at the moment. Whatever he wants us to do now is what we do. If, we, if God was leading us a certain way back here and we blow it and God says, okay, you're not going that way, you're going this way, we can't go back and say, well, Lord, I'm sorry I blew it, let's, let's go ahead with that way that you had before. He says, no, this is the way I'm leading you now. And that's exactly what happened here. God says, this is your punishment for refusing to go up, so now they're going to go up anyway. I mean, can we, can we get the absurdity of this? They wouldn't go up in the strength of the Lord. Now they're going to go up without the Lord. Good thinking. <laughs> right. And they pay a horrible price. Hundreds are killed. Slaughtered there. People of God slaughtered with a sword on the ridge there. Moses decides that it probably would not be good for them to try to go up by that same route because of this earlier defeat. Let's find a new way in where the people will have uh, nothing to hinder their faith to believe that they will be victorious in this particular conquest. And so he leads them to another spot. He, he says, let's go from Kadesh, let's go northeastward from here towards the land of Edom. And his, his plan was to establish a bridgehead into Canaan uh, from the low country just north of the Dead Sea, which would actually be in the land of Moab. But in order to get the land of Moab, he had to pass through the land of Edom because the Edomites controlled the area south of the Dead Sea and the Moabites the land east of the Dead Sea. And so he's going to have to pass through the territory of these people. So his plan was to go across what is called the Arabah. Now, if you can picture this region of the world, you have the Dead Sea, which is the lowest spot on the surface of the earth that is exposed to the atmosphere, obviously at 1,300 feet below sea level is the surface of the Dead Sea. But as you come out of the Dead Sea to the south, you're in a, in a graben, a downfaulted region. And it's still very low. Now it does arrive ultimately back at sea level because you come to the Red Sea, which is directly south of the Dead Sea. And the Red Sea is at, quote, sea level, right? Uh, so you do rise to that. So you come from 1,300 up to zero. But in the process of where they were going to go through, they were going to go through this downfaulted area immediately south of the Dead Sea where you're still 1,000 feet below sea level. So they go down in this thing, and then they've got to come up, onto the, up the escarpment onto the plateau, which is east of the Dead Sea. Now, the country today called Jordan, uh, much of the western part of Jordan is a plateau area. All the way from north of the Sea of Galilee, we're all familiar with the... Uh, Golan Heights, right? It's been such a big deal over the last decades now. Golan Heights is the northern part of that plateau. And as you come south through even where the capital 
of Jordan is today, and all the way down into the south area of what used to be Edom. That's all a plateau area. You're three, four, uh, three or 4,000 feet above sea level there. So when you think about it, you're coming from 1,000 feet below to three or 4,000 feet. You know, it's quite a climb. But that was the route he was going to take. But what stood between him and doing that was Edom. And he said, we're going to come through your land, but we won't touch anything. We just want to come up through the King's Highway and follow north from there. Now, the King's Highway wasn't exactly I-5, but it was, a, it was a marked known route by which travel took place between Egypt <clears throat> and the lands of the Levant all the way over into Mesopotamia. There were two main routes, the Via Maris, which went along the coast, and the King's Highway, which went along the plateau area. And so he was going to, that's what he said, we're going to travel along King's Highway. So we're going to go up I-5, <clears throat> and, and we won't touch anything along the way. But he says, no, no, no. If you come through our land, you, 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 we know you, you treacherous person, Jacob. You supplanter, Jacob. Uh, you will drink our water. You'll eat our food. You'll steal our women. You'll steal our animals. You're not coming through here. And to make sure they understood, he sent the Edomite army to demonstrate against him. You know, squadrons of MiGs and whatever else, you know. The soldiers came out and brandished their swords and shields and their steel helmets and their, their breastplates and all the rest of it. Um, you know, the army of the land. And Israel wasn't a military people. And, and uh, so he thought this would intimidate them. And in one way it does, but not in the way we might think. It does in the sense that God says, don't go that way. Don't go that way. Could God have wiped out Edom? Piece of cake. One of the things we discover as we read through the history of all of this <clears throat> is that God still considers Edom important. God still considers Moab important. God still considers Ammon important. These are all descendants of Abraham. And, and so he considers them important. And as you know today, the modern Arabic people, the word Arab is a broad term, takes in a lot of different people groups. Um, they consider themselves the descendants of Abraham, as does Israel. And so there is a relationship there. And God had, of course, promised to Ishmael that he would raise up a large number of nations. And so it is. And God respects this. Now, there is a point at which God will say, all right, you've had your opportunity to bless Israel. You blew it, so you're gone. But not yet. Not yet. Verse 22 of Numbers 20. Now, when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up to Mount Hor. Strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And after Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. Certainly some sincerely and some not sincerely, but that was the official mourning period for someone as important as was Aaron. 
Israel traveled east from Kadesh, northeast actually, and they came to Mount Hor. We have no idea exactly where that mountain is. We know it has to be somewhat northeast of Kadesh, Barnea, probably not terribly far. It is believed to be a mountain which is today known as Jebel Madura, which is located about 15 miles northeast of Mount Hor, of, of, of Kadesh, which is a logical place for it to have been. And by the way, Jordan, I should say, yeah, the country of Jordan today argues that Mount Hor is over in the middle, in the heart of Edom, what used to be Edom. Jordan today, oh, lucky Jordan. Jordan controls the area that belonged to the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, various Canaanites, all those lovely ites. And what is interesting about this is they claim that Mount Hor is not too far from what we today know as um, Petra, the great rose city of Petra. And of course that can't be because they weren't allowed to go into Edom. It couldn't have been in the heart of Edom. It had to be out on the outskirts of the country, maybe out even outside the country. And, and so this is the logical place where, uh, where Aaron was, was buried. Miriam had died at Kadesh, and now Aaron is to die 15 miles away at Mount Hor, and Moses, of course, will die over in Moab. All three of them will die within less than one year of one another. It's just an amazing thing. It just helps us to understand God gathers his people to himself according to his timetable. And it was Miriam's time, it was Aaron's time, and then it was Moses' time, and none of them was sick. It was simply God says, I want you now. And so God took those three in his timetable. The great ancient triumvirate was slowly being gathered into the eternal promised land. And for Moses, this meant his standby brother was gone. His sister, she'd been a little bit troublesome along the way, but she had basically supported him. She was gone. Now, she was the elder one. She was 13 years older than Moses. She was gone. So who does Moses have left? Moses may be a great man of God, but you still need flesh and blood to lean on sometimes, you know, somebody to talk to. But he did have someone. He still had Joshua, Caleb, and his nephew, Eliezer, the one who became. Now, Eliezer's a lot younger. Joshua and Caleb are quite a bit younger, too. But they are ones who obey the Lord and walk as Moses walked. As I've said before, you're going to love this man, Eliezer, as we get along here. In some ways, he was more faithful than his father had been. And, of course, Joshua and Caleb, great men of God. In fact, the story, a whole book of Joshua is a fabulous uh, account of this man and the work God did through him. Well, we, we don't have time to continue further today, but uh, we'll, we'll look at this event and what God does here for, for Eliezer uh, particularly.